This week as I was driving, as I typically do, I had the radio on and CBC Radio's program, afternoon program, now or never, was asking several children, what do you prefer? Do you prefer the daytime or the nighttime? And it was universally expressed by the kids, we prefer the daytime. Now, the, the hosts of the show had a question then, which was a very simple one. Well, why do you prefer the day? To which I loved the one child's answer, which was so profound, they answered and said, because it's not night? <laughs> There's just a simplicity, isn't there? There is something about the night that is somewhat disturbing and terrifying. If you think about your childhood, don't some of the greatest fears that uh, you can recall come from the darkness of night? Whether it's you've got to make sure that the closet door is closed to the bedroom, or you just don't like putting your feet down, down below because something might reach out and grab you from underneath the bed. Now, parents, aren't you thrilled that I'm mentioning all these things because tonight you're going to have all these terrors and fears from your kids? Now, for the kids out there, I want you to know that no one ever came out of my closet and no one ever grabbed me from underneath my bed. But if you ask Melanie, that might be a different story about what happened to her. Now, in, in these moments of, of fear and terror, we, we experience the dread of dark because what happens with the dark is that we've lost one of our senses. We've lost the sense of sight. And when we've lost the sense of sight, what happens in the midst of that is that we, we lose one of our first reactions to anything that goes on. And suddenly, sounds feel a lot more closer. They feel a lot more ominous. They, they come to us and any movement in the room just causes a, a bit of fear and trembling in our beings, doesn't it? And yet John writes the book of Revelation to describe to us how we can have hope in the midst of a world full of darkness. He is reminding us that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. This is what he would write to the church in 1 John chapter 1. That John would remember that the God who created all light is also the one who Though people had walked in darkness, they were going to see a great light, and upon them a great light had shone, as Isaiah had prophesied in Isaiah 9. And that the God who created and said, let there be light, as Paul would say in 2 Corinthians 4, has shone the light of the gospel of the glory of the face of Jesus Christ into our hearts. And so there is a God who is still creating light, who is still speaking, let there be light. And there is a God who comes to us, who tells us that there will be an end to all darkness. That the God who overcame the chaos and the darkness at the beginning of creation is the one who comes. So how is it that we can have hope in the midst of the darkness of dark days? I want to look forward. I want us to fix our eyes. Advent is a season, not merely of preparing for Christmas, but it is the reminder of Christ's first coming and anticipation of his second. That there is his first and his future coming. 
to which we ground and root ourselves in, that the church has for millennia, two millennia reminded themselves that Christ's first coming is the promise of another coming, a greater coming, a coming day where all evil will end, where all sorrow and sadness and sickness and sin will be brought to a complete end. And in that, as we wait for that day, what is it about this day that gives us hope? From Revelation 22, I want us to see how this end of darkness brings us hope in the present. And there are two things that we find. The first is this, is that we find in Revelation 22 that God is the source of our life. He is the source of all life. There are two things that are essential for life. Two things that are needed to sustain life. The first is you need water in order to sustain life. We know this because anytime there's some sort of planetary exploration, what are they looking for on other planets? Water. They're looking for water because you know that in order to sustain life, you have to have water. And in the, the vision that John has, we're told that the angel who has been giving him these visions after vision after vision, as John has this vision, what we're told in Revelation chapter 22 is that the angel shows John what? The river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. And here what we have is this picture This picture that begins to parallel the very beginning of the Bible story, now with the end of the Bible story. You'd think that someone masterful had actually written this book so that the way that it begins and the way that it ends, it it bookends itself with some profound pictures. Surprising that though there are many authors, the one author of this book brings it all together and just as it began in a garden with with people who, who were walking and talking with God, what we have also is the end of this story coming together. And we can see the parallels that the river that flooded and and flowed through the Garden of Eden, that first garden, is now a river that flows here from the throne of God and from the Lamb. The, the very tree of life that existed in the Garden of Eden now is here again in, in Revelation chapter 22. It's this tree that sustains and gives and will find does more than just give life. It does something else. That There was a curse that was brought when sin had come into the world and God had cursed the ground. He had cursed, he had cursed the, the way that we would work. He, he brought pain and suffering and sorrow into this world as a result of our sin and now we hear that there is no, nothing that is accursed in this final garden city. And the last thing is that just as Adam was to rule and have dominion over the world, now what we hear at the end of Revelation is that what is going to happen is that God's people will reign with him forever. And so in this masterful telling of the story of history, God's redemptive purposes, this true story of how he works, he brings together the, the beginning of the story at the end, and he encompasses all of this. And what he does is he shows that though the garden, the first garden, was a glorious and good and wonderful garden, this is a better garden. It's a garden that, that's in the city. It's a garden in the city where, where God dwells. And there is this picture of this source of life. John is picking up in this revelation passages all throughout the Old Testament. 
He has in mind pictures from Ezekiel's temple in Ezekiel 47. He has this understanding of, of the glory that is coming from Ze- uh, Zechariah chapter 14. He sees the entire Old Testament and the way that this river flows and it brings life and joy as, as Joel 3.18 had prophesied. And over and over what we hear is that this source of life comes from the very throne of God. Now do you notice how this river is described in verse 1? As this river of life comes, it is bright as crystal. If you have ever been to the, um, to, to the Caribbean, you've seen the turquoise waters and how absolutely glorious and beautiful it is. There's something pristine about the water. And yet the minute that you dip your finger into that water, you know it is anything but pure water, isn't it? It's got a salty taste to it. And yet here, John, what he sees is a river that is beyond turquoise. It's crystal. It's shimmering and shining. And in a world where we experience acid rain and pollution, and in the ancient world where there would have been garbage that would have been discarded into rivers, to find a pure source of fresh, clean water would have been even more rare than in many cases today. And as a result of that, to to have a vision of a garden where there is a pristine river, pure, clean, no pollution, nothing ruining it. And where does it come from? It comes from God himself. When Ezekiel saw this river in Ezekiel 47, it began from the throne of God in the temple. And as it began to flow, he was instructed to, to go and to step into the water. And it was just up to his ankles And then he would go a little ways down, and then it was up to his knees. And then he would go further down, and it was up to his hips. And then he would go even further down, and he could not cross it because it was over his head. And the interesting thing about the river that Ezekiel sees in Ezekiel 47 is that there are no tributaries flowing into this river. There's, There's nothing that's feeding this river. It just gets larger and larger and larger which is mind-blowing because every single river that we know of, it has tributaries that flow into it which make rivers even greater and bigger. Just consider, for example, one of the great rivers of the United States, the Colorado River. It has many tributaries that flow into it. And it begins in the, in the mountains of the Rockies in Colorado. And it, it gets its name from the, the reddish tinge of the Colorado mountains. And as it flows and as the tributaries feed it, it, it does build. And finally, when you get to Las Vegas, just 35 miles southeast of Las Vegas, there's a huge dam, the Hoover Dam, which holds back a ton of the water from the Colorado River to generate a ton of power for the American Southwest. As that water then flows out of the Hoover Dam, as it enters into California, this great enormous river that passes through the Grand Canyon gets smaller, not bigger, because the amount of water that is extracted from the Colorado River across the the, the California desert to nourish all sorts of farmland It ends up that by the time that the Colorado River reaches its delta at the Gulf of California in Mexico, it is virtually 
non-existent. It's a growing crisis in the United States, especially for agriculture, because how are you going to be able to sustain the millions and millions of people who live along, who live in the American Southwest if you don't have water? This is a major source of water for millions of Americans, and yet it dries up by the time it reaches the ocean at the Gulf of California. But not so the river of God. The river of God is contrasted with something like that. Humans have a a wonderful way of taking something that's really good and we ruin it, we pollute it, we wreck it. In trying to sustain life, we know that we need water to sustain life. Here we take something that is so good and yet we cannot keep it to sustain ourselves. But contrast that with the river of God. In the, in the Psalms, in Psalm 46, verse 4, it says, There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. You see, God is the source of life. And this source of life that comes from God himself, it comes from the throne, we're told, and of the Lamb, and it flows out. And what does it feed and nourish? It nourishes this tree of life. We hear of that tree of life in Genesis, in Proverbs, elsewhere. We, we hear of this tree of life, and, and this tree of life, it's something interesting about it. If you notice it, if you're overly literal when you read Revelation, it's going to drive you crazy in a passage like this. Because look at what it says about the tree of life. That this stream flows, verse 2, through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life. How do you have a tree that is on either side of the river? Now, that doesn't make sense to us, but have you ever had a dream and it just doesn't make sense to you? I see a few heads going like this. There's a lot of times we have dreams and they just, pieces don't make sense, but they make sense in your dream, don't they? They all fit together and and you don't think that there's anything weird about it until you wake up. And you wonder, was it because I had too much cheese before I went to bed? That's why I'm dreaming this way? Well, here John has this vision, and though it doesn't make sense, we have to remember that what he's seeing is something prophetic, something apocalyptic. And so we, we dare not be overly literal and be worrying about, well, how can a tree be on both sides of a river? And for whatever reason, John sees this tree, and it has, well, it has two interesting parts about it. It, well, the first part is that it bears fruit. And it bears fruit, we are told, every single month. It's always producing. Now, I know from the trees that I've had that have been fruit-bearing, there's a short season that my trees bear fruit. But here, this tree is just constantly bearing fruit. Not only is it bearing fruit, but it's bearing what? Twelve types of fruit. Now, you can do that by grafting today, but in John's day, this is, like, this is beyond genetic engineering. This is an enormous feat of fruitfulness. It's yielding its fruit each month. We're told that as it feeds and it, as it grows and it, as it produces, it's sustaining, it's life-giving. But not only is the fruit life-giving, look at the leaves, how they're described. It's describing the leaves... 
in verse 2, as for the healing. While Ezekiel saw it as healing for the people of God, here it's healing for the nations. It heals the world. Now we know that there are medicinal properties often in, in leaves and things like that. But here this tree does something remarkable. This tree, it does the very thing that humans are trying to overcome. In the midst of climate crisis, where economics and climate seem to be polarized, where it seems like any time we, we have this discussion about how do we flourish in society, that it's economics versus climate, and it, these two things seem to be pit against one another, and we feel the, the difficulty. In God's economy, economics and nature are not at odds. They're brought together. That the healing of this tree's leaves is for the nations. And it brings such healing that, that what it intends to do is it, it overcomes division. It overcomes racism. It overcomes war. It overcomes hardship. This is the tree who brings the economics of flourishing. And it all stems from the God who is the God of life. The God who gives life by His very throne and His nature. The river nourishes this tree of life. And as it produces, as it heals, as it brings all of these things, we can't help but think of the echo of Psalm 1. Blessed the blessed man who takes from the tree of life. And as he is planted by streams of living water whose leaf does not wither and whatever he does prospers, what we hear is, is a man who is rooted in the very word of God, who is nourished and strengthened because what comes from God is life. Life comes from God. He is the sustaining, life-giving God. He is the one who heals body and soul and mind and nations and economics he is the one who brings an end to all war and division. And so the very thing that we ought to find is that anything that comes from God, specifically as revealed by his word, as Psalm 1 would remind us, is to nourish us and strengthen us. If we're going to be prepared for that day, this day, then we put our hope in this word. This word that gives us the life-sustaining, life-giving life-imparting, very source of God. This is our nourishment, and it prepares us for the age to come. It prepares us for the kingdom that is already broken into this world. It is that which is life-giving, which, which in the midst of darkness, it, it gives us the life that we need. That when you don't have life and you don't have hope, where do you find it? You don't find it contrary to our modern age by looking deeper within. You find it by the very word that was spoken. Let there be light. And the word that continues to speak. Let there be light. And the word that will be the source of all of our life. This is why the psalmist can say in Psalm 73 verse 26. That though my heart and my flesh might fail. God you are the source of of the strength and of my life and my portion forever. That, that God must be the source of our life. 
Not just that he gives us life, but that he sustains our life. He maintains life. That we find that there is life in God when we find that life has despair and nothing hopeful in it. We look to God. And so we look to him over and over. So that's the first thing that we find, is that we find that God is the source of all of our life. Anything that is life-giving. But there's a second thing that we find in verses 3 to 5. That God is not just the source of our life, but that we find that God is the source of all light. The second thing that's needed to sustain life is not just water, but light. And what we find in these passages is that there is this profound sense of God who is light. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God... Uh, sorry, no longer will be there be anything accursed... But the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. There is something about being in a garden and doing gardening that I think is, I've called gardening eschatological. There's this sense in which it's an anticipation of the future. You plant in anticipation of the world to come, the day to come. You plant a tree not in hopes that tomorrow would be fruitful, but that in 20, 30, 40 years it will provide great shade or maybe great fruit. I, I've just always grown up with this sense of, wanting to fiddle and play with seeds. If you go into my office, you'll find that I'm trying to grow an avocado tree, which has always been the bane of my existence. I'm always trying to grow something. In, in one of my drawers, I found that in one of my drawers, it's just got a nice heat source to it. I can put seeds in a napkin in a Ziploc bag. I can tuck them away in a dark place, and they'll sprout. But they never grow leaves in the drawer. Why is that? Well, if you have the answer, you're, you can help me with my gardening tips later on. But, but the reality is that you need light, don't you? You need a source of light in order to create life. Life needs water and it needs light. The, the greenness comes from the photosynthesizing process that, that as the, the plant takes in the nutrients, the photosynthesis process of the sun, it, it produces this greenness. It produces leaves. And those of you who are far more scientific than me, you can correct me later on all of my wrong scientific details. But what you know is that you need water and you need light. You need light, and this is true not only when you're planting seeds and pushing against the curse and wanting to grow things. It's true in a spiritual sense, too, that you need to be nourished by water and by light. And what we find here is that the very barrier to what we need to, to grow and to flourish is overcome. That's why John says in verse 3, no longer will there be anything accursed. Nothing there is of the curse any longer. The end of the curse has come. The curse brought darkness into the world. The curse brought moral darkness. It brought moral bankruptcy. It brought difficulty and pain and sorrow. It brought sickness and sadness. It brought sin and death. 
And suddenly all of those things are gone. They're all gone. Forever. They've disappeared. There's no more cancer in the new heavens and new earth. There's no more seizures. There's no more car crashes. There's no more death and dying. There's no more bad news. There's none of that. There's a day coming where the good news is only going to get better. And the news the next day is only better than the day before. And the hope that you experienced yesterday will, will only increase in joy and happiness. And the happiness that you experienced yesterday is going to pale in comparison to the hope that's going to come next and next and next after that. That it only goes better and better and better. That, that heaven, this world of love, isn't going to have any sort of drudgery about it. Why? Because the moral bankruptcy of this world is gone, and so the things that are good are only going to get better and better and better. Every flavor is going to get better. Every song is going to get better. Everything that you could experience will only increase in getting better forever. So if you think that heaven is going to be one long, boring church service, it's just going to get better and better. And it's not going to just be one long, boring church service as opposed to what some people think. That we're going to actually, we're told, we're going to serve our God. Because the curse has been overcome. Darkness has ended. The people who have walked in darkness have seen a great light, and upon them the light has shone. And it will increase their joy, Isaiah says in Isaiah 9, verses 2 and 3. And the God who said, let there be light, as Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4, has shone the light of the glory in the face of Jesus Christ into our hearts so that the light that comes, as we argued from Genesis 1, when there is no sun, no stars, if there is light at the very beginning of creation, it emanates from God, which is why in Revelation 22 we are told there is no more night. You don't need a lamp. It's not going to be dark. You're never going to have to have the night light on to read when you go to bed. It's going to be light forever, and it's going to emanate from God himself. And what this light is going to do, Isaiah could see this. Isaiah prophesied about this. He could see that there was a day coming where there would be no more night. Isaiah would say this in Isaiah 60, verse 19, The sun shall be no more your light by day for your brightness shall the moon give you uh, sorry the sun shall be no more your light by day nor brightness shall the moon give you light but the lord god will be your everlasting light and your god will be your glory god is going to emanate his light for you forever which is why psalm 36 verse 9 says in your light do we see light or when, when we hear the words of Aaron as he blesses the people, the Lord bless you and keep you and make his what? Face shine upon you. This was the anticipation that Israel had even when the glory of God had come and dwelt in the tabernacle. Because now it's not the tabernacle that dwells upon, among us, it is God himself. And God himself who dwells among us will be our light and his face will 
shine upon us. We will see his face, John says here. We're going to see his face. One of my absolute favorite stories from the Bible, from the Gospels, comes from Mark chapter 10. I had these books as a child. They were called the Arch Books. They're produced by a Lutheran, um, uh, just by the Lutherans. And they were kind of these poetic stories that would tell you uh, stories from, from the Bible and in a way that would grip you as a child. They had goofy art and weird rhyming poems, but they did something to me as a kid. I remember the story of blind Bartimaeus. The story comes from Mark chapter 10. He's sitting by the side of the road, and as he's sitting by the side of the road, he hears that Jesus is coming, and what does he say? He says, Jesus, son of David, have mercy upon me. And Jesus stops, and he goes to this blind man, and he asks him what he wants, and he says, I want to see. And at that, Jesus speaks a word, and suddenly his eyes are opened. And the way that the story goes in the arch books is that when blind Bartimaeus opens his eyes, the very first thing that he sees is the face of Jesus. It has always gripped me that the very first thing, the very thing that will give your heart a sense of hope and joy and peace and love and tranquility forever when you open them and the first thing you see is the face of Jesus is him. Heaven is a world of love, not because the people you love are there, not because there's just an end to sickness and sadness and sorrow and suffering, but because the very thing that your heart longs for, Jesus, John says, you will see him. And the reason you see him is because there's no more night. There's nothing like being in your bed in the darkness of night, and if somebody comes into the room, you can't tell necessarily who it is because you can't make things out in the dark. But when the light has come and there is an end to night, and when God himself is light, when he is the source of all light, then he is the revealer of all that is good and beautiful forever and ever. Amen. And that means that it's only going to get better and better because every glimpse of him, you're going to notice something new. You're going to discover something more glorious about him. You're going to see him in all of his wonder and majesty in increasing measure forever and ever. That's because, because with God, infinity is only ever increasing with him. That you're only going to ever discover more of God. If you think you know God now, you only know him a bit, as, as, as the Apostle Paul can say in 1 Corinthians 13. Right now we see dimly as through a glass that's darkened, but then we will see clearly. We're going to see everything, and it's only going to get more and more and more and more and more clear. Because the new creation that is coming, the garden city that God has for us, is that we're going to be able to do what Adam failed to do, and we will reign with him forever and ever. Just in case forever wasn't long enough, John adds, and ever. 
and we will reign with him forever. What Adam was intended to do is going to just continue on. We are going to continue on doing forever and ever. And why is that? Well, there are three things that I want to point out. Three reasons, very briefly. There are two things that are missing from this garden that, were, that existed in the first garden. The first thing that's missing is that there's no more serpent. You remember that serpent that kind of wild his way into the garden and he was a talking snake and he should have been dealt with by Adam? He doesn't exist here. We're told in Revelation chapter 20 verse 2 that the devil, that serpent of old... We are told he is cast into the lake of fire in Revelation 20, verse 10, where he will suffer forever and ever. In other words, the end of all temptation and sorrow and difficulty is gone. There is never going to be a moment in the new creation where you are with God, where you will have any inkling of ever rebelling against God. Never. Every temptation will be gone And that makes me want it more. The second thing that's not there, do you remember what happened when when Adam and Eve were sent out of the garden? There were two angels. And this is always my moment during the Advent season where I have to just get on my soapbox. Angels don't sing. Never in the Bible do angels sing. They hold swords. When they show up, they freak people out so that they go, don't be afraid. Singing angels, like the one that's outside of my office window that someone put there, don't sing. They scare the living daylights out of you. Now that scared the living daylights out of me, not because it's singing, but because I didn't expect an angel to be outside of my window. Angels don't sing. They are messengers and warriors. And at the Garden of Eden, when God protected his very presence, what did he put? He put two angels with flashing swords that no one could ever enter back into the presence of God ever again unless they passed through the swords of judgment. That there was no way that you could come into the presence of God. And forever and ever, Israel would remember this. They would have two angels, these two angel warrior angels on the top of the, of the Ark of the Covenant. The, the angels that symbolize coming into the very throne room of God. That, that to come into God's presence in the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle, you first had to get between two angels who, had, who, who brought judgment, who were warrior angels. But there's no angels guarding the presence of God here in Revelation 22. There's no serpent. There's no angels guarding the presence of God. Why is that? The third thing, it's because there's no curse. John says that there is no curse. The curse is gone. And the reason that there is no curse is because the very one who went into the very presence of God, who went through the sword of judgment, bore the curse for us. Paul says in Galatians 3.13, Christ became the curse for us. That he took on the curse for us. That in his first coming, what he did was he suffered under the curse of sin and death. That the very thing that Adam had to deal with, thorns and thistles, the Lord Jesus wore on his head as a crown. 
He wore the, the crown of thorns to show that he endured the suffering of the curse that Adam had experienced. And the very pain that Eve experienced as part of the curse of childbearing, now the Son of God bears in his arms and hands and as he experiences the punishment of sin and death. But he experiences all of that so that all pain is gone and all sorrow is gone. That he bears the thorns and he bears the pain. This is why when Isaac Watts would write, he would, Isaac Watts would be challenged as a young man, if you don't like the Christmas carols that we sing, then try your hand at writing better songs. So he did. And he took from the Psalms a psalm where he reflected on Jesus' first and second coming. We often sing this song at Christmas, but it's not a Christmas song. Joy to the world, the Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room and heaven and nature sing. Joy to the earth, the Savior reigns. Let men their songs employ. While fields and floods, flocks, hills and plains repeat the sounding joy. But it's this verse, no more let sin nor sorrow grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow. How far? Far as the curse is found. And it's why Charles Wesley would pen these words. He would say, light and life to all he brings, risen with healing in his wings. Mild he lays his glory by, born that man no more may die, born to raise the sons of earth, born to give them second birth. Sorry, Charles, hark, herald, hark the herald angel does not sing, but I'll forgive you, it rhymes. And what God does is he says to you and me, in a world where there is darkness, where there is moral bankruptcy, where you face temptation, where you feel the pain of sin and death, where you know the realities of broken relationships, of losing a loved one, of economic hardships, of cancer, or of bad health, there is a day coming where all of that will come to an end and you put your hope in the one who tasted that for you. And when you put your hope for today, you put your hope in him today, it gives you, as great as thy faithfulness says, bright hope for tomorrow. Blessings all mine with 10,000 beside. So the darkness might feel extremely close, but Christ has come, and he has tasted all of that for you so that you could taste that which is good forever and ever, which is why he brings joy to you and joy to the world, which is why we trust in him. Let's pray. Father, <clears throat> in the midst of sorrow and sadness, we need, we need hope. We need hope for tomorrow. 
And thank you that in you there is bright hope for tomorrow. There is the light of the gospel of the glory of Jesus Christ. That the one who took on flesh, who understands poverty far better than any of us in this room have ever understood poverty, the one who faced rejection, far greater rejection than any of us have ever experienced, the one who was scorned and despised by men. Thank you that in your poverty, Lord Jesus, in the shame that you experienced, in the sadness and sorrow, that you were a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, one from whom men hid their faces, you were despised, you were not esteemed, you took up our infirmities, you carried our sorrows, you were stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted, but you were pierced for our transgressions, you were crushed for our iniquities, upon you was the chastisement that brought us peace. You are the one that brings healing. So we sing with joy. And we look to the future, not as hopeless people, but as people who know a bright hope for tomorrow. So Lord, come again. Come quickly, Lord Jesus, which is why we sing to you now in Christ's name.